Chapter 12, Part 1 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section 21. While Lincoln, in a certain sense, was buried in the law from the time his career in Congress closed till, to use his own words, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise aroused him again. Yet he was a careful student of his times, and kept abreast of the many and varied movements in politics. He was generally on the Whig electoral tickets, and made himself heard during each successive canvass, but he seemed to have lost that zealous interest in politics which characterized his early days. He plodded on unaware of, and seemingly without ambition for, the great distinction that lay in store for him. John T. Stewart relates that, as he and Lincoln were returning from the court in Tazewell County in 1850, and were nearing the little town of Dillon, they engaged in a discussion of the political situation. As we were coming down the hill, are Stewart's words, I said, Lincoln, the time is coming when we shall have to be all either abolitionists or Democrats. He thought a moment, and then answered, ruefully and emphatically when that time comes my mind is made up for i believe the slavery question can never be successfully compromised i responded with equal emphasis my mind is made up too thus it was with lincoln but he was too slow to suit the impetuous demand of the few pronounced abolitionists whom he met in his daily walks the sentiment of the majority in springfield tended in the other direction and thus environed Lincoln lay down like the sleeping lion. The future would yet arouse him. At that time I was an ardent abolitionist in sentiment. I used to warn Lincoln against his apparent conservatism when the needs of the hour were so great. But his only answer would be, Billy, you're too rampant and spontaneous. I was in correspondence with Sumner, Greeley, Phillips, and Garrison, and was thus thoroughly imbued with all the rancor drawn from such strong anti-slavery sources. I adhered to Lincoln relying on the final outcome of his sense of justice and right. Every time a good speech on the great issue was made, I sent for it. Hence you could find on my table the latest utterances of Giddings, Phillips, Sumner, Seward, and one whom I considered grander than all the others, Theodore Parker. Lincoln and I took such papers as the Chicago Tribune, New York Tribune, Anti-Slavery Standard, Emancipator, and National Era. On the other side of the question, we took the Charleston Mercury and the Richmond Inquirer. I also bought a book called Sociology, written by one Fitzhugh, which defended and justified slavery in every conceivable way. In addition, I purchased all the leading histories of the slavery movement and other works which treated on that subject. Lincoln never bought many books, but he and I both read those I have named. After reading them, we would discuss the questions they touched upon and the ideas they suggested from our different points of view. I was never conscious of having made much of an impression on Mr. Lincoln, nor do I believe I ever changed his views. I will go further and say that, from the profound nature of his conclusions and the labored method by which he arrived at them, no man is entitled to the credit of having either changed or greatly modified them. I remember once, after having read one of Theodore Parker's sermons on slavery, saying to Mr. Lincoln substantially this, I have always noticed that ill-gotten wealth does no man any good. This is as true of nations as individuals. 
I believe that all the ill-gotten gain wrenched by us from the Negro through his enslavement will eventually be taken from us, and we will be set back where we began. Lincoln thought my prophecy rather directful. He doubted seriously if either of us would live to see the writing of so great a wrong. But years after, when writing his second inaugural address, he endorsed the idea. Clothing it in the most beautiful language, he says, Yet if God wills that it, the war, continue till all the wealth piled by the bondsman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The passage in May 1854 of the Kansas-Nebraska bill swept out of sight the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise Measures of 1850. This bill, designed and carried through by Douglas, was regarded by him as the masterpiece of all his varied achievements in legislation. It served to prove more clearly than anything he had ever before done his flexibility and want of political conscience. Although in years gone before he had invoked the vengeance of heaven on the ruthless hand that should dare to disturb the sanctity of the compact of 1821, yet now he was the arrogant and audacious leader in the very work he had so heartily condemned. When we consider the bill and the unfortunate results which followed it in the border states, we are irresistibly led to conclude that it was, all things considered, a great public wrong and a most lamentable piece of political jugglery. The stump speech, which Thomas H. Benton charged that Douglas had injected into the belly of the bill, contains all there was of popular sovereignty. It being the true intent and meaning of this act not to legislate slavery into any territory or state, nor to exclude it therefrom, but to leave the people thereof perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way subject only to the constitution of the united states an argument which using lincoln's words amounts to this that if any one man chooses to enslave another no third man shall be allowed to object the widespread feeling the passage of this law aroused everywhere over the union is a matter of general history it stirred up in new england the latent hostility to the aggression of slavery it stimulated to extraordinary endeavors the derided abolitionists, arming them with new weapons. It sounded the death knell of the gallant old Whig party. It drove together strange discordant elements, it readiness to fight a common enemy. It brought to the forefront a leader in the person of Lincoln. The revolt of Cook, Judd, and Palmer, all young and progressive from the Democratic majority in the legislature, was the first sign of discontent in Illinois. The rude and partly hostile reception of Douglas on his arrival in Chicago did not in any degree tend to allay the feeding of disapproval so general in its manifestation. The warriors, young and old, removed their armor from the walls and began preparations for the impending conflict. Lincoln had made a few speeches in aid of Scott during the campaign of 1852, but they were efforts entirely unworthy of the man. Now, however, a live issue was presented to him. No one realized this sooner than he. In the office discussions, he grew bolder in his utterances. He insisted that the social and political difference between slavery and freedom was becoming more marked, that one must overcome the other, 
and that postponing the struggle between them would only make it more deadly in the end. The day of the compromise, he still contended, has passed. These two great ideas have been kept apart only by the most artful means. They are like two wild beasts in sight of each other, but chained and held apart. Some day these deadly antagonists will one or the other break their bonds, and then the question will be settled. In a conversation with a fellow lawyer, he said of slavery, it is the most glittering, ostentatious, and displaying property in the world. And now, if a young man goes courting, the only inquiry is how many Negroes he or his lady love owns. The love for slave property is swallowing up every other mercenary possession. Slavery is a great and crying injustice, an enormous national crime. At another time, he made the observation that it was singular that the courts would hold that a man never lost his right to his property that had been stolen from him, but that he instantly lost his right to himself if he was stolen. It is useless to add more evidence, for it could be piled mountain high, showing that at the very outset Mr. Lincoln was sound to the core on the injustice and crime of human slavery. After a brief rest at his home in Chicago, Mr. Douglas betook himself to the country, and in October, during the week of the State Fair, we find him in Springfield. On Tuesday he made a speech in the State House, which, in view of the hostile attitude of some of his own party friends, was a labored defense of his position. It was full of ingenious sophistry and skillful argument. An unprecedented concourse of people had gathered from all parts of the state, and Douglas, fresh from the halls of Congress, was the lion of the hour. On the following day, Mr. Lincoln, as the champion of the opponents of popular sovereignty, was selected to represent those who disagreed with the new legislation, and to answer Douglas. His speech encouraged his friends no less than it startled his enemies. At this time, I was zealously interested in the new movement, and not less so in Lincoln. I frequently wrote the editorials in the Springfield Journal, the editor, Simeon Francis, giving to Lincoln and to me the utmost liberty in that direction. Occasionally, Lincoln would write out matter for publication, but I believe I availed myself of the privilege oftener than he. The editorial in the issue containing the speeches of Lincoln and Douglas on this occasion was my own, and while in description it may seem rather strongly imbued with youthful enthusiasm, yet on reading it in maturer years I am still inclined to believe it reasonably faithful to the facts in the situation. The anti-Nebraska speech of Mr. Lincoln, says the article, was the profoundest in our opinion that he has made in his whole life. He felt upon his soul the truth's burn which he uttered, and all present felt that he was true to his own soul. His feelings once or twice swelled within, and came near stifling utterance. He quivered with emotion. The whole house was as still as death. He attacked the Nebraska bill with unusual warmth and energy, and all felt that a man of strength was its enemy, and that he intended to blast it if he could by strong and manly efforts. He was most successful, and the House approved the glorious triumph of truth by loud and continued huzzas. Women waved their white handkerchiefs in token of women's silent but heartfelt assent. Douglas felt the sting. The animal within him was roused because he frequently interrupted Mr. Lincoln. His friends felt that he was crushed by Lincoln's powerful argument, manly logic, and illustrations from nature around us. The Nebraska bill was shivered. 
and like a tree of the forest was torn and rent asunder by the hot bolts of truth mr lincoln exhibited douglas in all the attitudes he could be placed in a friendly debate he exhibited the bill in all its aspects to show its humbuggery and falsehood and when thus torn to rags cut into slips held up to the gaze of the vast crowd a kind of scorn and mockery was visible upon the face of the crowd and upon the lips of their most eloquent speaker at the conclusion of this speech every man and child felt that it was unanswerable he took the heart captive and broke like a sun over the understanding anent the subject of editorial writing it may not be inappropriate to relate that lincoln and i both kept on furnishing political matter of many varieties for the springfield journal until eighteen sixty many of the editorials that i wrote were intended directly or indirectly to promote the interest of lincoln i wrote one on the advisability of annexing cuba to the united states taking the rather advanced ground that slavery would be abolished in cuba before it would be in this country a position which aroused no little controversy with other papers one little incident occurs to me in this connection which may not be without interest to newspaper men a newspaper had been started in springfield called the conservative which it was believed was being run in the interest of the democratic party while pretending to support fillmore it was kept alive by buchanan men and other kindred spirits who were somewhat pro-slavery in their views the thing was damaging lincoln and the friends of freedom more than any avowed democratic paper could the editor an easy good-natured fellow simply placed in charge to execute the will of those who gave the paper its financial backing was a good friend of mine and by means of this friendship i was always well informed of matters in the conservative editorial room one day i read in the richmond inquirer an article endorsing slavery and arguing that from principle the enslavement of either whites or blacks was justifiable and right I showed it to Lincoln, who remarked that it was rather rank doctrine for Northern Democrats to endorse. I should like to see, he said with emphasis, some of these Illinois newspapers champion that. I told him if he would only wait and keep his own counsel, I would have a pro-slavery organ in Springfield publish that very article. He doubted it, but when I told him how it was to be done, he laughed and said, go in. I cut the slip out and succeeded in getting it in the paper named of course it was a trick but it acted admirably its appearance in the new organ although without comment almost ruined that valuable journal and my good-natured friend the editor was nearly overcome by the denunciation of those who were responsible for the organ's existence my connection and lincoln's too for he endorsed the trick with the publication of the condemned article was eventually discovered and we were thereafter effectually prevented from getting another line in the paper the anti-slavery people quoted the article as having been endorsed by a democratic newspaper in springfield and lincoln himself used it with telling effect he joined in the popular denunciation expressing great astonishment that such a sentiment could find lodgment in any paper in illinois although he knew full well how the whole thing had been carried through during the remainder of the state fair week speeches were made by lyman trumbull sidney breeze e d taylor and john calhoun none of which unfortunately have been preserved among those who mingled in the crowd and listened to them was owen lovejoy a radical fiery brave fanatical man it may be but one full of the virus of abolitionism i had been thoroughly inoculated with the latter myself and so had many others who helped to swell the throng the nebraska movement had kindled anew the old zeal and inspired us with renewed confidence to begin the crusade 
as many of us as could, assembled together to organize for the campaign before us. As soon, therefore, as Lincoln finished his speech in the Hall of the House of Representatives, Lovejoy, moving forward from the crowd, announced a meeting in the same place that evening of all the Friends of Freedom. That, of course, meant the abolitionists, with whom I had been in conference all the day. Their plan had been to induce Mr. Lincoln to speak for them at their meeting. Strong as I was in the faith, yet I doubted the propriety of Mr. Lincoln taking any stand yet. As I viewed it, he was ambitious to climb to the United States Senate, and on grounds of policy it would not do for him to occupy at that time such advanced ground as we were taking. On the other hand, it was equally as dangerous to refuse a speech for the abolitionists. I did not know how he felt on the subject, but on learning that Lovejoy intended to approach him with an invitation, I hunted up Lincoln and urged him to avoid meeting the enthusiastic champion of abolitionism. Go home at once, I said. Take Bob with you and drive somewhere into the country and stay till this thing is over. Whether my admonition and reasoning moved him or not, I do not know. But it only remains to state that under pretense of having business in Tazewell County, he drove out of town in his buggy and did not return till the apostles of abolitionism had separated and gone to their homes. I have always believed this little arrangement, it would dignify it too much to call it a plan, saved Lincoln. If he had endorsed the resolutions passed at the meeting, or spoken simply in favor of freedom that night, he would have been identified with all the rancor and extremes of abolitionism. If, on the contrary, he had been invited to join them, and then had refused to take a position as advanced as theirs, he would have lost their support. In either event, he was in great danger. And so, he who was aspiring to succeed his old rival, James Shields, in the United States Senate, was forced to avoid the issue by driving hastily in his one-horse buggy to the court in Tazewell County. A singular coincidence suggests itself in the fact that, twelve years before, James Shields and a friend drove hastily in the same direction, and destined for the same point, to force Lincoln to take issue in another and entirely different matter. By request of party friends, Lincoln was induced to follow after Douglas, and, at various places where the latter had appointments to speak, reply to him. On the 16th of October they met at Peoria, where Douglas enjoyed the advantages of an open enclose. Lincoln made an effective speech, which he wrote out and furnished to the Sagamon Journal for publication, and which can be found among his public matters. His party friends in Springfield and elsewhere, who had urged him to push after Douglas till he cried, Enough, were surprised a few days after the Peoria debate to find him at home, with the information that by an agreement with the latter, they were both to return home and speak no more during the campaign. Judge of his astonishment a few days later to find that his rival, instead of going direct to his home in Chicago, had stopped at Princeton and violated his express agreement by making a speech there. Lincoln was much displeased at this action of Douglas, which tended to convince him that the latter was really a man devoid of fixed political morals. I remember his explanation in our office made to me, William Butler, William Jane, Ben F. Irwin, and other friends, to account for his early withdrawal from the stump. After the Peoria debate, Douglas approached him and flattered him by saying that he was giving him more trouble on the territorial and slavery questions than all the United States Senate, and he therefore proposed to him that both should abandon the field and return to their homes. Now Lincoln could never refuse a polite request, one in which no principle was involved. I have heard him say, It's a fortunate thing I wasn't born a woman, for I cannot refuse anything, it seems. He therefore consented to the cessation of debate proposed by Douglas, 
and the next day both went to the town of Lakin, where they had been billed for speeches. Their agreement was kept from their friends, and both declined to speak, Douglas on the ground of hoarseness, and Lincoln gallantly refusing to take advantage of Judge Douglas's indisposition. Here they separated, Lincoln going directly home, and Douglas, as before related, stopping at Princeton and colliding in debate with Owen Lovejoy. Upon being charged afterwards with his breach of agreement, Douglas responded that Lovejoy bantered and badgered him so persistently he could not gracefully resist the encounter. The whole thing thoroughly displeased Lincoln. End of section 21. Recording by Don Bracci, Chicago, Illinois. www.voicedon.com.